You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Good morning and welcome to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Uh, I'm your host, Breach Burke, um, and I'm saying good morning. You may not be morning when you're actually listening to this. Usually when I put it out, it's uh, not morning. It's usually late afternoon, um, although I put it out usually earlier for um, Patreon and uh, Metapsychosis listeners and then uh, for everybody else um, the following morning. Um, this week, what we're going to talk about, the subject of this week's podcast is the goddess Komadi. Now, Komadi is one of the Astamatrikas. We started the series of the Astamatrikas last time with Chamunda. Um, and these are the se- sort of seven, again, depending on the tradition you're in and depending on which part of the um, part of uh, Asia that you're in, this could be, um, you know, Komadi, you know, we're talking about either the, se- some have the tradition of the Septamatrikas, or the seven mothers, Um and some have the, the tradition of the um, of the Astamatrikas, which there which there are eight. There's an, there's an extra one. And you know, I was thinking um, if if you listened to um, if you're familiar at all with the Sri Devi Kadgamala Stotra, um, the, um, the, the those those goddesses are actually they're they're represented a little bit differently because in that one the way the, the ones that I'm looking at are you know Chamunda Komari um, Endrani who's also known as Mahendri, um, Brahmani, um, trying to think, uh, <clears throat> Vaishnavi, uh, Vahari, um, and uh, one of the, let's see, there's, there's one I'm missing here. Let me just uh, look at my names here. Um, oh, yes, Maheshwari. Maheshwari, and then usually the eighth is uh, Narasimi, which is what we're going to do, although in the uh, Kadgamala Stotra, it's actually Mahalakshmi, um, who's a rather um, strange choice because she's not, she does not tend to, just just as, you know, you have um, goddesses like Kamala, who are part of the Mahavidyas, um, Lakshmi's energy seems to be vastly different from that of the, um, of, of the Matrikas, the kind of fierce energy of the Shaktas. But that said, um, she does tend to represent that uh, intense energy of uh, of nature and of the world. So, because uh, the way it goes in the Sri Devi Kadgamala, if I recall right, is um, Brahmi, Maheshwari, Komari, um, Vaishnavi, Vahari, Mahendri, Chamunde, Mahalakshmi. That's how it goes. So it's um, so those are the you know so these these are the the mothers and actually they they are the um, deities that rule kind of an outer circle of the Sri Chakra. Now, uh, Komari is, is associated with the god Komara, because we have we indicated a lot of these goddesses are listed as, as the sort of being the Shakti of certain male deities. Now, she's not the wife of Komara. Komara is the god of war, also known as Skanda. Um, and I believe um, he has one other name as well that's not um, coming to me right off the top of my head. It might be in my notes here. So I will tell you as I, uh, as I come upon it. Um, but the idea is that she is, um, she is the Shakti of war. Now to say that she's the Shakti of war, um, she's not, so, so there's a violence there, okay? Because obviously there's a violence and a struggle associated with war. Uh, Komari is associated with, um, you know, with the god Agni, the god of fire, as we'll see, that makes a tremendous amount of sense. She presides over Ketu, which is the south node of the moon. 
And that's usually considered the tail of sort of the, um, uh, the cosmic serpent, if you will. Um, so, you know, just as Rahu is the head and is all head and no, no retrospect and no looking behind, thus K2 is the tail. Um, so K2 tends to represent, you know, what's already, you know, what, what's, what's behind, if you will, what's, you know, but also um, tends to be viewed as blind. That said, K2 or K2 Dasha tends to be associated with um, liberation, okay? So that's, as you'll see, all of these things tie in. Now, there's three main aspects of Komari that I, we want to talk about, and they, are going, they may seem, especially to the Western um, listener, um, and who knows, maybe even to the Hindu listener who's trained in traditional Orthodox um, Hinduism, maybe, maybe not, depending. You know, I, I have, I'm surprised at how many of my Hindu friends I've found are rather surprised by some of these associations. So I, I don't want to just assume, but certainly I would think in the West this would be alien. We have three sort of main aspects of Komari that we want to talk about. Now, the first is um, her association with war. Okay, that seems to be the most obvious one is the Shakti of uh, Kumara. Um, then there's her name. Then we want to talk about her, the meaning of her as a goddess of youth. Okay, because Komara and Komari both are words in uh, Sanskrit that mean young or youth. Okay, they often refer to adolescents or teenagers. Um, and finally, um, we want to talk about Komari with respect to childhood sort of in virginity in particular. These are, these are sort of some of the main aspects um, that she, that, that, you know, are used to represent her in different forms. Because while we, as we're going to see, there's a couple of different forms of Komari. There's the form that we're going to see, um, you know, where she makes her sort of brief appearance in the Devi Mahatmayam. Um, and then there's also the form of her uh, as the Kanyakumari. Now, Kanyakumari is a place in South India, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about the significance of that place and the special uh, special Komari pujas that take place there. And um, and and as you'll see, there there's going to be some it, you know this is it's there's going to be some paradoxes there that need to be looked at. So let's start with her iconography. What does she look like? Okay. Um, oh, that's the name that wasn't coming to me. Kartikeya. And that's, that should have been the most obvious one. But Kartikeya is another name for the god of war. Okay, so here, um, I think I've taken this from, um, you know, I'm not sure, probably Wikipedia, just to get a general sort of definition. Um, so it's known as Kumari Kart uh, Kartikeyani is another thing she's known as, and the Shakti of Kartikeya, the god of war. Komari rides a peacock and has four or twelve arms. She holds a spear, axe, scimitar, trident, bow, arrow, sword, shield, mace, lotus, long sword, discus, and a conch shell. She killed the Rakshashas with her axe, and she's famous in her Jagadamba form. Okay. Um, now, let me just read to you. I have a, a, her shloka, okay, her dhyanam shloka. And uh, let me just find uh, the, the words here. I'm actually using the translation from... Um, Theon Press's book, Ferocious. Um, it says, Komari has one face, two eyes, and four hands with a crown and a green complexion. She makes the fearlessness and boon-giving mudras and carries the spear and lightning lance. I offer worship to Komari, who can make all beginnings fortunate. Okay, now you notice she also carries lightning. That's That, um, that actually sort of transitions into the first 
um, manifestation we're going to talk about, which is her manifestation as a goddess of war. Um, now, think about war gods uh, throughout mythology. Um, we have, you know, who, who are the gods who are sort of the, the generals of the armies, if you will, or the, um, you know, the, the ones who are victorious in battle. And many of them are storm gods, okay? Um, okay, in the West, who's, who's the main god of um, monotheistic, um, what we'll say, Torah or biblical uh, Hindu, uh, thinking? Is uh, Yahweh or Jehovah or Jehovah, depending on how you like to say that name. Uh, that's a, uh, Yahweh started out as a storm god, as a kind of a lightning god, okay? Um, Zeus, okay, Zeus in the... Um, uh, in Greek mythology, he's the king of the gods. And see, the king, too, is, is also associated with this. Um, but also, you know, has, has, the, has the lightning bolt. Um, and I think of Lu in, you know, very appropriately as we get close to Lunasa, um, in the Celtic, because Lu also carries the lightning bolt. Um, and the lightning bolt is an apt representation of war, um, there's also there's also Andrani, who we're going to talk about in the next episode, and of course her connection to Indra, because Indra is the one in Hindu mythology that carries the lightning bolt. And he is also the leader, and he is also the one with the power. Um, so, but it makes sense, because lightning has to do with, um, you know, when you have a thunderstorm, okay, it clears the air. If you think about the festival of Lunasa, which is um, also known as Lamas Day in the West, uh, August 1st, um, generally a thunderstorm is considered fortuitous on that day, at least in Celtic tradition. And the reason for that is that Lug, um, Lug is actually battling against Balor, who opens his great eye and burns everything up. And um, what he does is he drives his lightning bolt into Balor's eye, and then you know, he's able to um, you know, defeat him in that way. And what you can see this, I mean, for all the other things that symbolisms of this particular mythology, the one thing that we can take away from that, you know, at least on the most basic natural level, is this idea of um, Balor representing the heat of summer. Um, and as I say, it's appropriate because the day I'm recording, this happens to be one of the hottest days that we're going to actually have in New Jersey uh, this summer. Heat index of 104 Fahrenheit, which is just just lovely. You're probably, we're talking like the 50 degree mark uh, centigrade if you're in other parts of the world. So um, it's, you know, so the idea is that the summer heat is taken down by the thunderstorms, which uh, herald that decline in the year, um, you know, the cooling off, the decline in the year as we move towards the harvest, okay? You know, that has, that, that has to happen because otherwise there'd be famine and everything would just burn up if it was just this relentless fire or heat going on all of the time. So it's interesting that she carries a lightning bolt. Now, um, Indrani, again, will also have her associations with that, and we'll talk about that in the next episode. Um, but her, her association with war. Now, in South India, Komari is considered a war goddess in her own right. She's completely independent. In, uh, but more generally, as the, as the Shakti, not the spouse, okay? Because... Um, because uh, Kartikeya or, or Skanda or Kumara, he has a spouse already. Um, she's not listed, considered to be his spouse. Um, she is, she is the, the vital energy of war. And she, just like uh, Kumara rides a peacock, 
into battle. And it's sort of an interesting choice of bird. But when you think about it, they're very flashy and they're very aggressive birds. Um, peacocks are beautiful, but they're, they don't, they're, they're not as in nature. They, they tend to be aggressive. They don't tend to be very nice. So, um, so there's this, so Komari, um, as the Shakti of Komara, uh, does ride a peacock into battle. Now I have the, the bit from the, uh, Chandipat, um, that discusses the, um, this, this particular line that makes a reference to Komari. And, um, and it's a, uh, let's see if I can say this correctly, Dyatyan uh, Jagana Komari Tata Shaktya Tikopana, okay? Which means, uh, where, which is where they're talking about the different uh, Shaktis who are attacking the armies. Um, and uh, they, they, you know, it starts with Maheshvati, and then it's Vaishnavi, and then Komari, who is, uh, who is translated here as the ever-pure one, okay? So that's the other thing, too. Komari is associated with purity in youth. Um, hence the virginity connection. It says, um, and the uh, and the the translation here, and again, this is from the um, Swami Satyananda Saraswati's translation of the Chandipat. Um, the ever pure one with her energy, okay, because they talk about um, Maheshwari uh, attacking with her trident. They talk about. Um, uh, Vaishnavi attacking with her discus, and the ever-pure one with her energy. She fights with en- pure energy, okay, which almost implies like a lightning bolt kind of a thing. Battled with the, with the thoughts in a fierce rage, okay. So she is, um, you know, so there's this, so, you know, in spite of how they may appear in some of the images or the iconography of these great battles, um, the deities are not, I mean, they're, they're not assuming a pleasant countenance. They're, they're angry, and they are... Um, and they are in their bloodlust mode. Now, we, I think we had mentioned in the previous one that all the matrikas have a vice associated with them. And the vice of Komadi is attachment, okay? Which, um, as the authors of Ferocious note, um, that's something that you might not expect. You might expect her, um, you know, her, her vice to be wrath, okay? But they said, but attachment is ultimately what leads to war. It's that desire for power, um, I was thinking about this, and and yeah, I think I, I spoke about this in the last episode. But I also uh, had a, had a conversation completely independent of this this in the last week about um, the way in which uh, we, we were talking a little bit about black magic and about the way black magic works, and the idea that there are some people who deliberately create chaos and fear in order to um, in order to absorb power from that, in order to gain power from that. Um, and you see this even, even in your traditional Western ideas of the demonic. Okay. If you have somebody, for example, who says that thinks that they have a demon in their house or that somebody is possessed by a demon. Okay. Whether you really, whether you believe in such things or not, the, the, the idea behind it is that when you encounter a force like that, the more angry, the more upset and the more afraid you are, the more you feed it. Okay. So the idea is that, um, there's people who try to, um, you know, certain practitioners, maybe people who may be more sociopathic, who try to feed on the fear and anger and rage of others. Okay. Um, you know, to give power. And, and it's kind of interesting because to a certain extent, that's, that's one misuse of the Shakti, right? That, that, that blind, you know, you, there is a power to be gained, but it's a misunderstanding of that power. The idea is that this power, which is like a, you know, it's like a, a massive flamethrower, like shooting up, 
Um, it can be a very destructive thing. Um, and it can give the power to destroy, but it is also the power to create in there. And it's about, um, you know, just like the concept of purity and purification um, is kind of a double-edged thing as well. Um, neither thing, they're all, um, I suppose, what do you want to call them? You know, they're sort of facts of existence, I guess you would say, that are neither good nor bad in and of themselves. They're, they're powerful things, but they can be used in different ways. And the, so the vice that would be a, that has to attributed to Komari would have to do with, um, how do I want to put it? it it's, it's like this the attachment, because you become attached to things. When you see demons, um, because you know anybody can practice austerities, anybody can practice spiritual discipline, okay? But demons do it particularly because they are trying to gain power. So in other words, they, they um, will, will undergo certain things. They'll, they'll fast, they'll maybe say prayers or mantras, they will do different things, practice certain kinds of yogas, or um, you know, deny themselves certain things so that they may be granted boons. You always hear them about, oh, I've got, you know, this, this demon practiced these austerities and went to Shiva for a boon or went to Brahma for a boon. And the boon they always ask for is to be invincible to all men. And that's a very masculine understanding of, the, of that energy. It's the idea, first of all, that what's feminine can't possibly, um, you know, can't possibly have any power. It's weak. Uh, but there's the, but definitely there's the sense that there's this power to be tapped into, and it becomes from an attachment. It comes from a greed. I want to be king of the world. I want to be, I want to have all of these possessions, and I want to have you know whatever luxuries you know at my tip. It's like the the billionaire class who it's just kind of like who just can't you know um, the you know even though sharing even a fraction of what they had would in no way leave them poor. You know they don't want to share. So it's you know. Um, you know, they want to avoid taxation. They want to avoid all these things uh, that, you know, it's like, eh, you know, that that's that nobody should be in a position of having so much that others are, are deprived. So we, we have this. So we have these kinds of um, things that, you know, they're related to the idea of attachment. OK. And uh, so Komari, I mean, she that that is her vice, but it's also the thing that she can help overcome, because remember, she's also associated with K2 which has to do with liberation. So we're going to look at these two kinds of, uh, it, it's a way, in a way, it's, um, it's two sides of the same coin. It's the same way, it's the complex way in which that energy can be used. War itself is something that is very difficult to, um, you know, generally, they, okay, there's people who will say there's no justification for war, we should fight for world peace. Uh, on the other hand, you have certain writings, for example, the, um, uh, the Bhagavad Gita, where uh, you have the very, very extremely famous chapter. If nobody knows any other part of the Gita, they know the uh, conversation between Arjuna and Krishna, um, in which Arjuna, you know, goes to the battlefield and sees that he is fighting me other members of his family, you know, his brothers, his uncle, you know, they're, they're fighting other and, and put and wants to put his weapons down and says, "I can't, I can't fight my family." Now, in the West, we would say, "Well, that's that's a noble thing. That's that's the lo love of family overcoming." But that's not how that's not how this all plays out. Krishna says to him, "Who are you to decide when these people? They're these. They're their death is already for you know foretold or foreordained. It's not up to you to decide. You are you're a warrior. You belong to the warrior caste. Okay, which which caste initially whatever else, what other 
other questionable uses there are of caste in India, certainly the idea was that these this was the different um, this had to do with your role in society. So you know if you were born to the warrior caste, that's what you did. You were you were you were a warrior. Um, and so Krishna is saying to him, that's your duty, that's your dharma, that's what you're supposed to do. And go out and do it. Don't you know? Don't don't sit here and say, uh, oh gee, you know, I, I no. If you're a warrior, you go out and you fight a war. And that that that's a very upsetting passage to a lot of people in the West because they say, well, you know, yes, but but you know, he's right to avoid war. Well, okay. My my general own my general take on it is that war is not a pleasant thing. War is not something you know. A, a state of peace over a state of war, yes, that would be preferable. But, um. The reality of things is, is that things never stay at a stationary point. And if they did, um, life would be very, very stagnant. War is part of maybe more the ne- more negative side, as we interpret it, of the dynamism of the way energies move in the universe and the way um, societies work and the way personalities interact. Um, because you can have groups of people who are together, but not everybody is, um, you know, you, you know, you could, okay, you could have a group, let's just say you and three of your friends decide, um, let's just say you like to sit around and have philosophical discussions, and you come up with this great idea thinking, wouldn't it be great if everybody, you know, if we got together and we, you know, this, and this is not uncommon, by the way, this happened a lot in the 60s and well before it. We see a lot of religious orders, the Franciscans immediately come to mind, who were founded in this way. And it's just kind of like, let's, let's come together and let's do it our way and let's do it simply and simply and peacefully and we'll um, help others in this way. Like, it always starts out with a very good and very um, uh, noble kind of idea, okay? So you have these few people, and other people like your idea, and then they want to come join you. Well, you know, in order for a movement to succeed, you do need more people. However, um, as you have more people, uh, (laughs) what, you know, you inevitably are going to get somebody who thinks they can do it better, who's going to be critical of people who are running things, um, and is going to have their own, you know, who, who even if they sort of on one level agree with your idea, they're going to have their own ideas about it, and their ideas may not be, um, you know, they, they may, it may be more about their own agenda than about, say, helping others or helping the group. Um, it may be about, like, how can I work this to my benefit? You know, so th- there's those personalities are always out there. And let's be real, that is an aspect of everybody's personality. There, the, all of us, to some degree, are looking for a way to um, make our situations work for us, if you will, um, to, you know, to, to capitalize on things. And part of that is legit. Part of it is, you know what, you can't, um, you know, it, it would be nice if you were in a position, if you had crap loads of money to begin with, you could give everything away that you do for free. Um, you know, and then there's some people who will still, who will still do that. They're in a kind of position or whatever, um, where they maybe choose to live in poverty and give away what they have. But, you know, the, the reality is that a lot of people have to, um, you know, you, you have to make a living at, you know, you take your talents and, and rather than give them away for free, you have to make a living. There's also the problem in our Western capitalistic societies that nobody values things that are free. Um, we don't, we don't, we tend to, um, we tend to disdain things that are, you know, that we don't pay for. It's like, because then therefore they don't have a value attached to them, a, a financial value, because we've so ingrained in ourselves the idea that that's equated with value. Now, of course, the reality is that that has nothing to do with that at all. 
but there has to be, this is why we talk about the idea of an energy exchange. You know, there has to be something of value given for this other thing of value, okay? Um, one example of this is in the Reiki school that I belong to, um, the Teramai Reiki school. Uh, they, you know, the idea is that Mrs. Takawa, who was the founder, used to give, make, give, uh, make people Reiki masters for free, but then she was just astonished, especially when she came to America, how many people just kind of took it for granted and went, oh yeah, I did that Reiki thing, you know, whatever. So then finally she said, fine, nobody's mastering unless they pay $10,000. Well, now people are paying attention and now it's important, right? So we, we have this idea, we have this attachment to this kind of a thing. We have this, this kind of association with value. And this is also frequently why people um, who are, you know, who have money also have power because there's, there's a perceived value to them with their wealth. So, okay, so we have this idea of attachment and war is, so there's, there's war that can be made to restore a balance, okay? And there are, just like there's different, this is like when I talk about death, I'm not necessarily always referring to physical death. When I refer to war, I'm not always referring to an actual, you know, conflict between nations or, or peoples or whatever. War is also something that can happen internally. Um, you know, if we go back to our storm analogy, I mean, what, what happens when things become very hot and oppressive? You know, the storm comes in because, you know, because there's an oppression and now this pushes back and, and cools things down and recreates balance. Okay. Um, you know, you, you know, there's the expression of fighting fire with fire. Well, that's not always the way to do it. Some oftentimes when you see representations of balance, whether it be in tarot or whether it be in, um, any kind of esoteric literature or, you know, so forth, there's always the idea of, um, you know, the fire and the water, um, le feu et le e, and, and I'm sorry, le feu and le, you know, cause there's a the thing, um, the, the fire and the water that work together. So it's, um, you know, so yeah, so there's the idea of, of those forces being in balance or being in harmony. Um, and in fact, one of the, um, those that battling is Brahmini or Brahmi, uh, who, um, her, her weapon for the, for the, against the demons, she actually is pouring a, a pot of water onto them. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so there's this idea, again, fire and energy in and of itself is not a negative thing. It's a matter of how it's used. And this is, this is actually a typical motif that's um, a typical metaphor, I guess you could say, for when people talk about magic or magical practice. You know, energy is something, it's, it's neutral. It's not, um, it's neither, you know, positive or negative. It's neither, um, you know, this is not about, uh, you know, whether fire is good or evil, you know, I mean, fire, like I said, heats your house, um, it, it goes through your, you know, it, it has a form as electricity that goes through your house, um, and keeps everything running, you know, and, and then it, you know, it can, it can cook food for you, you know, I mean, fire has a lot of positive uses, fire is associated with the ability to create things, but fire can also be destructive, so this is, this is kind of the double-edged, um, energy of that shakti, of shakti of war, and I think in a, in a being like commodity, we particularly see that because it's pure energy. Um, and that energy, and when that energy come, comes at you full force, you know, you know, there's, there's the idea of, uh, you know, um, flicking your bick and having a, having a little light versus getting your flamethrower out and like, you know, shooting it, you know, way across. Okay. I, I think you get the idea, but the idea is that, you know, um, Komari represents that, that force, that Shakti, and she is associated with fire. Now, okay, so that's a little bit about her in terms of war. Now let's talk about the idea of youth. Um, 
Youth is th this term of youth. Now, for one thing, there's the idea, um, okay, let's just think about military restrictions in the, uh, I'm thinking of the United States in particular. When there used to be a draft, it would be young men at the age of 18 uh, had to um, enroll in selective service. Um, and they would, you know, they'd be drafted into the army for a period of time or into some kind of service. I remember when my father told me when he was, because um, this was back, he graduated high school in the 1940s, um, he was told, uh, you know, he rather than, I mean, he registered for selective service, but he also went and he took the test to be in the Air Force because he didn't want to go in the Army. He liked working on, he liked working on stuff. He liked working on engines and stuff. So he wanted to be an airplane mechanic. So he's like, well, if I'm going to have to go and if I'm going to have to enlist and be in, I want to be in the Air Force. Uh, and he passed the test for the Air Force, and um, he, he ended up being in the Air Force for several years before, um, you know, his first marriage and so forth. But... Um, it was, you know, so the, so this idea of, um, you know, uh, you know, but the idea with selective service is that after a certain age, I believe it's after age 35, no one is expected to serve because the idea is that once you've reached a certain age, um, there's different things, you know, just this general infirmity of the decline of life. Now, 35 seems kind of young, let's be honest, but, um, Strictly speaking, well, frankly, after 40 is when everything just seems like it starts to, you know. And then, of course, there's people even older than their 40s and 50s who are going, huh, you know, you have no idea. Yeah, actually, I do have an idea. I mean, I'm not personally experiencing it, but um, but, but you do have these kind of bodily changes that um, make you less able to go through and do the things that you did when you were younger. I mean, those of you who liked to go to, like, punk shows and stuff, I mean, <clears throat> and I guess there's some people who are older who are still, still have the energy for that. Um, I can't do anything like that anymore. I just, I don't, um, I was never that great with crowds to begin with. Um, but when you're younger, you kind of have this capacity to be able to you know, stay out all night and, uh, you know, stay up with your friends, sleep for two hours, go to school. You know, I mean, you, you know, there's things that you did when you were younger that you can't do when you're older. Okay. That's kind of the point there. So, uh, so, okay. So there's that aspect of youth is perhaps having the most vitality and the most energy. We could look at it that way. Um, there's also some, some references to, um, you know, youth in you know you see this in as as being related to to war or to warriors um yeah youth or teenager and then there's this uh i think it was in uh, ferocious where they make the note that um achilles who is the great war one of the great warriors mentioned in the iliad the epic of homer um he's referred to as neos which also means teenager okay so and that's that's considered to be one of his his qualities or you know one of his features is that you know he is the youth um so and it's um so it's interesting uh you know this association between youth and warfare virgil's the one i think the first one because we don't we we sort of make that association just in terms of the youth and energy but at the same time you know we um you know, I'm just trying to, I'm thinking, my, my brain's going through all the mythologies here. The hero mythology, okay? The, you know, um, there's the, there's the myth, uh, the way, how is it described to me? It's cause sort of a variation of the myth of the, um, of the hero where they're born kind of in a pastoral setting where they live this charmed life, you know, like being raised by shepherds or, or whatever, um, in some bucolic, you know, setting. 
but then some crisis appears or some challenge and now they have to go out and they have to uh, either go on a quest or they have to fight a battle or they have to fight a monster or there's something that that goes on in that and that tends to be associated with um, say tests of you know for men of going into manhood for instance Um, women don't seem to have the same mythologies or expectations because you know women are not um, you know you know, now Jung would say it's because women already have a lot of the, the, the qualities that men are trying to learn to get. Um, uh, women have uh, w- women have a different cycle just because oftentimes women were associated with childbirth and with things like that. Um, but just as, you know, just as men today are not expected to go to war or to fight battles, um, women are not necessarily expected to have families. But, it, but again, if you talk about these masculine and feminine things, they, they have a meaning beyond... Uh, the immediate social role as well. We have, they have a psychological meaning. They have a, they may have a spiritual meaning. And all of us, male or female, um, have battles that we have to fight. And that seems to be part of the narrative of our culture. We don't, we don't simply let go, which is actually the feminine thing to do, by the way, simply letting go and being passive and allowing life to flow through you. We always seem to have to struggle with everything. Um, so, uh, you know whether it's necessary or not. I mean, you could you could argue about that. I'm not gonna <laughs> I'm not gonna digress into that philosophical argument, but um, but it is something that we tend to do, and you know to a certain degree we tend to think it's good for us. You know we tend to think like oh yeah we should um, you know str- struggle's good. You know uh, you know uh, it builds character. It was like you know I remember my ex husband if he uh, if he would do something and he ended up in hurting himself or he was you know had a back his, his mother would go well it's good for you you know <laughs> it was like, it's good for you it, you know it, it it keeps you from being too soft or being too too something you know so there's there's those kinds of associations um and they are associations with youth but the idea is that what turns you from a youth into moving into the next stage that these are all kinds of trials and tests that move you to the next stage and that this is the energy that's associated with that Okay, so we talked about the youth aspect. We talked about the war aspect. Now let's talk about the virgin child aspect. Whoa, let's throw that one in there. Um, okay, this has to do with Kanyakumari. Okay. Now who's now Kanyakumari? Okay, first of all, Kanyakumari is a place in South India. And now, if you remember from our initial discussions of Tantra, that um, there was a story of Shakti when she initially marries Shiva. And she goes to her father's, um, you know, um, yagna or sacrifice, and he insults her husband, and she gets enraged, and she self-immolates. Well, the idea is that the parts of her body felt, you know, that this was taking place in the heavens somewhere, presumably, from the way it's described, um, or on top of a mountain somewhere. And so... um, her body parts fall into all these different parts, and then these different pitam, shakti pitam, are set up uh, in the different places where her body parts fall. Like, for example, we've talked about Kalagat, where her toe supposedly fell, and supposedly they have her toe wrapped up and that it's so powerful nobody can even look at it, um, not even the priests. Even when they handle it, they have to be blindfolded. You know, it's like the, the, the power of shakti. Well, now, if we think about the fact that shakti in our bodies passes through our spinal column, um... Try to imagine the place where Shakti's spine would have fallen. Well, that place happens to be Kanyakumari. Supposedly, the spine of Shakti fell there. So that is considered to be sort of the Kundalini of India. Okay? So that is a real, real powerful, powerful force. Now, the representation of Devi Kanyakumari uh, is always represented as a child. 
okay? Um, a child usually, a child who hasn't had their period yet, okay? So this has to be a girl, usually somewhere between the ages of 6 and 16, who is, um, now, in, in, again, in some parts of Nepal and so forth, it's only a one-day Kumari Puja ceremony. Um, and there's a girl who is, uh, who's chosen for that. Now, let me just, uh, I have an interesting little article here from, this is called from, uh, Wikiwand. Okay, I'm not sure who the, uh, so this was, this was copied from another, um, Wikipedia, but this looks a lot more detailed than what I saw in Wikipedia, so I'm thinking that this may be, uh, slightly edited or different. Um, okay, so Kumari or Kumari Devi is a living goddess. Now, this is talking about the Nepalese version, but it's very interesting, and, and you know, think, listen to this and think about it, okay? It's the tradition of worshiping young prepubescent girls as manifestations of divine female energy uh, in Hindu and Buddhist religious traditions. The word Kumari is divine, does, uh, derived from the Sanskrit uh, Komaraya, which means young. Okay, in Nepal, a Kumari is a prepubescent, whew, I can speak today, girl selected from the Shakya caste of the Nepalese Nawari Buddhist community. The Kumari is revered and worshipped by some of the country's Hindus. While there are several Kumaris throughout Nepal, with some cities having several, the best known is the Royal Kumari of Kathmandu, and she lives in the Kumari Gar, a palace in the center of the city. The selection process for her is rigorous. As of 2017, the Royal Kumari is Trishna Shakya, aged three, oh, so she's even younger than six, installed in September 2017 by the Maoist government that replaced the monarchy. Um, Unika Badrachaya, selected in uh, April 2014 as the Kumari of Patan, is the second most important living goddess. Um, a Kumari is generally chosen for one day and worshipped accordingly on certain festivals like Navaratri or Durga Puja. In Kathmandu Valley, this is a particular, particularly prevalent practice. A Kumari is believed to be an incarnation of Taleju, which is a sort of Nepalese equivalent of Durga. When first menstruation begins, it's believed that the goddess vacates her body. Serious illness or loss of blood from injury can also cause loss of deity. Okay. The worship of the goddess in a young girl represents the worship of divine consciousness spread all over the creation. As the supreme goddess is thought to have manifested this entire cosmos out of her womb or out of herself, she exists in equally inanimate as well as inanimate objects. Okay? Um, so they, they refer to the verse that we had just looked at. There's, you know, just, just beyond the verse I read to you, that's when the, um, the, the great... Uh, uh, Shumba says to uh, Dorga, you have all this help. And she says, no, I, I reside in, in all things. Now, it says that she declares she resides in all female beings. She doesn't, see, that's, the, that's a mistake. She doesn't just reside in all female beings. The goddess resides in all male beings as well. That's the thing. That's, that, that's Shiva's discovery in the Mahavidyas. She, uh, Shakti is both in male and female. It's not just for women. And that's not what I think it actually says. But, um, okay, the entire ritual of Kumari is based on this verse. But while worshipping a goddess, only a young girl is chosen over a mature woman because they're inherent, inherent purity and chastity. Now, this, as you're going to see, is going to tie in with the ideas of liberation and sannyasi, sannyasi being the taking of vows as a, as a Hindu or Buddhist monk, okay, the idea of renunciation, sannyasi is renunciation. Okay, so, um, you know, so, okay. So the main target of a Kumari Puja is to realize the potential divinity in every human being. Okay. Um, okay, so with the so let's just talk about a little bit. They talk about the history of it. They talk about the legends that about the Kumari. 
Uh, most of the legends involve the tale of King Jayaprakash Mala, the last Nepalese king of the Mala dynasty, 12th to 17th century CE. According to the most popular legend, a king and his friend, the goddess Taleju, approached his chambers late one night as he played um, Trepasa, a dice game. The goddess came along every night to play the game with, their, with the condition that the king refrains from telling anyone about their meetings. One night, the king's wife followed him to his chamber in order to find out who the king was meeting so often. The king's wife saw Taleju, and the goddess was angered. She told the king if he wanted to see her again or have her protect his country, he would have to search for her among the Nuwadi, Shakya community of Ratnawali, uh, as she would be incarnated as a little girl among them. Hoping to make amends with his patroness, King Jayaprakash Mala left the palace in search of the young girl who was possessed by Taleju's spirit. Similarly, there's another story about the disappearance of Taleju. Some believe the goddess visited King Treloka Mala every night in the human form. Like other legendary stories, the king and goddess played chapasa or dice while discussing the welfare of the country. It's rather interesting. That kind of has the, the um, game aspect of creation and of life and how that um, is. In a certain sense, everything's a crapshoot. However, one night, King Treloka Mala made sexual advances towards the goddess Taleju. As a result, the goddess in rage stopped visiting the palace. The king in regret worshipped and pleaded for her return. Finally, the goddess agreed to appear in the body of a virgin girl from the Shakya family. So this is why this particular cast supposedly is chosen. Now, here's an interesting thing. Even today, a mother's dream of a red serpent is believed to be a portent of the elevation of her daughter to the position of royal Kumari. A red serpent? Hmm. What do we associate serpents with? Kundalini energy. What do we associate red with? Fiery energy or fire energy. Okay. So Komari, there we are. Uh, and each year the Nepalese king seeks the blessing of the royal Kumari at the festival of Indra Jatra. Um, this tradition has changed from 2008 with the country becoming the youngest republic of the world. Um, a variation of this and other legends names King Gunkam Dev, a 12th century ancestor of King Jayaprakash Mala, as the main character rather than Jayaprakash Mala. And the third variation says that during the reign of King Jayaprakash Mala, a girl was banished from the city because it feared that she was, was feared she was possessed by the goddess Durga. Um, now, you might think that um, being possessed by the Devi who rules the universe um, is, is a positive thing, but generally to say being possessed by Durga means that you are a very independent and self and, and um, very independently and assertive young woman. Um, they call you Durga or they call you Chandi. Um, I remember my, one of my friends saying to me, she says, oh, you know, when a girl, be, you know, when it's said that a girl is Chandi, it's saying that she's, you know, oppositional to her parents and is going to have her own way. Um, you know, that's, that's considered to be somebody who is Chandi. Okay. So, so it's an interesting um, connection there. So even though they venerate these goddesses, they don't want their daughters to be like that. Um, when the queen learned of the young girl's fate, she became enraged and insisted the king fetch the girl and install her as a living incarnation of Durga. Okay, the selection process. Now, this is interesting. Once Taleju has left the sitting Kumari, there's a frenzy of activity to find her successor. They some compare it to the selection process for the um, Dalai Lama or the Panchen Lama. Okay, so the selection process is, co is conducted by five senior Buddhist uh, Badrachara priests um, and, then, um, and also the royal astrologer. The king and other religious leaders that might know of eligible candidates are also informed that a search is underway. Eligible girls are from the new Arshakya caste of silver and goldsmiths. They must be in excellent health, never shed blood, or been afflicted by any disease, be without blemish, and must not have yet lost any teeth. Girls who pass these basic eligibility requirements are examined uh, for the uh, Batis Lakshanas, or 32 perfections. Some of these are poetically listed as such. 
a neck like a conch shell, a body like a bunion tree, eyelashes like a cow, thighs like a deer, a chest like a lion, and a voice and soft and clear as a duck's. Wow, that sounds more like a chimera than a woman. But um, in any case, um, my understanding, they say farther on that, no, these, you know, this is not, you know, that's a tradition, but, you know, things are not quite so invasive or rigorous as that. Um, it says, in addition to this, her hair and eyes should be very black, and she should have dainty hands and feet, small and well-recessed sexual organs, and a set of 20 teeth. I don't like the idea of male priests checking around to check out my sexual organs and the rest of my body. I don't know. But um, anyhow, this is, this is supposedly what goes on. The girl is observed for signs of serenity and fearlessness, and her horoscope is examined to ensure that it's complementary to the king's. It's important that there not be any conflicts, as she must confirm the king's legitimacy every year of her divinity. Hmm... That makes her almost a character having to do with sovereignty, kind of like you see with a mave or with, um, you know, similar figures up in Irish mythology. So very interesting. Um, although not not in, in Irish tradition necessarily associated with a particular um, individual. Her family is also scrutinized to ensure its piety and devotion to the king. Um, once the priests have chosen a candidate, um, they must, she must undergo more rigorous tests to ensure that she indeed possesses the qualities necessary to be the living vessel of Durga. Her greatest uh, test comes during the Hindu festival of Dashain. When a, on the Kalratri, or Black Night, 108 buffaloes and goats are sacrificed to Kali. The young candidate is taken into the Teleju temple and released into the courtyard where the severed heads of the animals are illuminated by candlelight and masked men are dancing about. If the candidate truly possesses the qualities of Teleju, she shows no fear during this experience. If she does, another candidate is brought in to attempt the same thing. Um... So, okay, so she has to undergo this test of fearlessness. I don't want to read through all of this. Um, now, there's some who say that, um, there's an ex-Kumari who says that um, not all of this that has nothing to do with it, that the royal ritual that the royal Kumari goes through each year, there are no men dancing around in masks, so that at most there are only a dozen or so decapitated animal heads in a scary room test. And she also describes a requisite physical examination of each Kumari is neither intimate nor rigorous. Okay, so that's good to know. But that's, you know, there's the idea. Um, once the Kumari's chosen, she must be purified that she can be an unblemished vessel for Teleju. She is taken by the priests to undergo a number of secret tantric rituals to cleanse her body and spirit of past experiences. Once these rituals are completed, Teleju enters her and she is presented as the new Kumari. Okay, she is dressed up and made up as a Kumari, then leaves the Teleju temple and walks across the square on a white cloth to the Kumari Gar, which will be the home for her, her home for the duration of her divinity. Okay, and then she leads a very charmed life. Um, and it's said that her, um, this is very similar to, you know, to the way that they would interpret um, the behaviors of emperors and so forth. You know, there's, there's obviously omens and oracles associated. So, um, it says when she does uh, give an audience to the public where people come, especially women who are afflicted with fertility issues, it said. And I should note that both Komara and Komari are also associated with fertility in spite of the virginity aspect. Um, and her, um, okay, so her actions during these audiences uh, are predictions of the petition petitioner's lives. So if somebody comes seeking aid from her. If she cries or laughs loudly, that could be serious illness or death. If she weeps or rubs her eyes, it could be imminent death. If she trembles, it means they'll be imprisoned. If she claps her hand, there's plans, there's a reason to fear the king. And if she picks at foods offering, picks at food offerings, it means financial losses. And uh, if she remains silent and impassive throughout the audience, her devotees leave elated. This is the sign that their wish has been granted. 
So if she shows any kind of emotion, then that usually is a bad sign, I guess is what they're saying. Um, traditionally, the Kumari received no education as she was widely considered to be omniscient. However, modernization has made it necessary for her to have an education once she re-enters mortal life. Kumaris are now allowed to attend public schools and have a life inside the classroom no different from other students. Okay. Um, so, similarly, her limited playmates must learn to respect her. Since her every wish must be granted, they must learn to surrender to her whatever they have that she may want and defer to her wishes in games or activities of play. Boy, that's, uh, hmm... Um, uh, <clears throat> okay, that's interesting. So, yeah, so, okay, so I just, you know, so just to share with you a little about the Kumari ritual, and, you know, and, and so you, you see these two things, and you think, okay, so there's this war goddess, this, 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 this sort of angry, enraged war goddess, um, associated with attachment, with the vice of attachment and power. And then you have this, this idea of this um, virginal child being associated with that goddess or with the pure, the, the, the absolutely pure kundalini shakti, so shakti of shakti, if you will. You know, so that's, um, so you think, wow, you know, what, is that, what does that have to do with a virgin child? And, you know, and of course, in the West, we tend to think of virginity and purity, um, feminine virginity and purity, you know, like the Virgin Mary is the icon. Um, but that said, um, the Virgin Mary does not have the power of a god. She can intercede, you know, you can pray to the Virgin Mary, and she supposedly will pray to God or to Jesus or whoever on your behalf. But, you know, Mary herself is just a, a, a very blessed saint. She's not a, a goddess per se, although you could argue about uh, the powers of saints um, in that kind of religious belief. So, um, but, I, but I think virginity is perceived differently. Like, you know, there's, there's certainly ideals that you will see socially of chastity and obedience and, and virginity and submission. When you have virginity associated with a goddess who is so, you know, represents something so absolutely powerful, such an such a incredibly powerful force um, that can be very violent and that can be very destructive. Um, I would suggest that this, you know, a lot of this has to do with, um, well, okay, there's a couple of things here. The, you know, the, that sort of purity factor um, probably may relate to the independence, the feminine independence. Because you, rem you remember, once a, a girl is old enough to, um, to menstruate and to be able to bear children, um, it's expected that, you know, she's going to be married. And, you know, the, you know, there's a whole social expectation that goes along with that, at least in traditional cultures. We're not saying that that necessarily always goes on today. But traditional cultures, cultures there's kind of that expectation that that's her role. Um, but the virginity aspect um, sort of has to do with the independence of the Shakti, okay? The Shakti is independent. It's not, um, it, it's virginal in the sense, because remember, the, originally the idea of virginity is not just simply that you haven't had sex, but that you're not married, okay? The idea that you're not beholden to, um, you know, you, you know there, there's no male who's sort of um, assigned to you or in charge of you in some fashion, okay? Uh, if you want to look at marriage in that in that way not that you have to look at marriage in that way but traditionally yeah a lot of it was looked at that way i mean there are matriarchal cultures and in south india in particular there are matriarchal um you know lineages where things are passed down through the woman rather than the man 
But that said, um, you know, you still have a lot of the same old patriarchal kind of um, holdovers in the way that, um, you know, with women's status still, even with that, okay? Um, Okay, so there's that aspect. And then the other aspect of it has to do with, again, if we look at the relationship of Kumari to sannyasi or to liberation, if we think about Tara and the Mahavidyas too, there's this idea of liberation, only this is liberation... um, through the, the, the taking of vows, to, to, through the um, renunciation of worldly attachment, okay? And that would mean um, the renunciation of desire, okay, and sexual desire. So this is, this is a decision that is made when one chooses sannyasi. So this is the aspect of shakti, um, just as they all have to, they all have to do with sannyasi and renunciation and liberation. Um, you know, connecting with shakti is always a path to liberation, um, but there are different paths, Okay, and so this is the one that has to do with people who are going to um, take vows of, you know, um, you know, you know, just just like clergy in the West will take vows of like poverty, chastity, and obedience. Um, here, they will certainly take vows of poverty and probably um, celibacy as well. Okay, so there's there's this renunciation. Okay, so there there's that association, and again, the K as I mentioned, the K two association has to do with um, getting rid of past karma or purifying oneself of past karma. And, um, you know, moving towards that, getting off the cycle of birth and death. Um, so we see all of this in Kumadi. So, um, again, we have a, a, a feminine figure who doesn't play a huge role anywhere. She's only kind of seen as a background figure, but she represents so much and so much that's complex. But the complexity, again, I'll, I'll remind listeners that, that that complexity has to do with the fact that these this is not... Um, you know, we're not talking about um, a, a dichotomy or we're not talking about um, or a binary. This is not like an either or situation. Either the energy is good or it's bad. Either she's a positive goddess or a negative one. Energy is energy and it can be used. It can be violent. It can be a source of gaining power. It can be a source of attachment. And it can also be utilized um, to liberate oneself from those attachments. Okay. So I think that's sort of the. Um, the takeaway from Komadi, um, as I said, she's worshipped on her own in South India. In many other places, she's worshipped with the other matrikas. But um, but that is her. That seems to be her. Um, the story and the message, um, or the maybe maybe not the message, but at least the meaning that we can see, uh, that we can discern uh, from you know looking at the, the power of that shakti. Okay, so that's going to be it. I've probably gone on far longer than than intended, as usual. But, um, so I'm going to end here and I'm just going to remind you, if you happen to be watching this on YouTube, please subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you can be notified when there's new podcasts that come out roughly every two weeks. Um, and sometimes I do do other videos on tarot and, and some other things. I haven't done any of those recently. I just haven't really been inspired to, um, cause in spite of all the things going on, um, I feel like I, I've already said enough on a lot of things and I don't want to keep repeatedly going over the same territory. Um, I'd like to see how some things change first. So, um, so, but I will be get back to doing those eventually, but, uh, just not right now. Um, my new book Maeve is out, which is spelled M E D B. And I, you know, apologize for the difficult spelling. The only cool thing about it, like I've said, is that it's very easy to find on Amazon if you know how to spell it. Um, so the way, way I try to remember it, if the spelling is hard is me, M E and then D B like database, M E D B that's, and it's pronounced Maeve cause it's an Irish name. Uh, not about the Irish goddess, by the way, but um, it is called Maeve. 
And my other book, The Morrigan Timelines, is coming along. I'm actually in the last chapters, um, which I hope to finish up this week. Um, and then I'm going to be out offering <clears throat> some of my extra services in um, Reiki and, uh, and you know, and, and tarot. Um, I do provide other services, as and what I call it is I call it, um, I call it liminal Reiki and I call it liminal tarot, mainly because... My focus is, and not that not that anybody can't avail themselves of these services, but generally it's people who are on the edge, who are between things, who are in transition, possibly in crisis, possibly in the void. And it's not that I can fix that or carry you across, but you know that I my what I try to do is provide some tools to help you um, navigate that on your own, because ultimately everybody has to navigate that on their own. I'm not there to um, to fix it for you. I mean, anybody who claims that they can or that they will, uh, I'd, I'd be a little suspicious of that. Ultimately, we all make our own journeys, but sometimes we could use someone to help us interpret or guide or, um, you know, help, you know, show you what, what your options are in terms of what way you can go. So um, that's the kind of service that I provide, and that connects very much in with Chthonia, which is about looking at the darkness and saying, okay, what, what meaning can we pull from this? Um, what, is, what does this mean to us, and how can we... How can we use it in a way that's constructive rather than um, us viewing it as some kind of an evil or something we have to exercise or avoid? So um, so with that, um, I want to thank my Patreon donors. If you would like to become a Patreon donor, I'd be very thrilled. Because um, Patreon, it just seems like now the way that they, they do things, you get less and less and less from Patreon. So um, if you like my work and want to support it, patreon.com slash Chthonia. You can follow me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, it's Chthonia on YouTube. It's Chthonia podcast everywhere else. Uh, one word on Twitter and on Instagram and two words on Facebook. Um, and all of that should be in the last slide if you're watching my YouTube video. Um, and liminalreiki.com if you are interested in uh, appointments with me. And I do do a daily tarot reading on Instagram uh, for everybody. Just a real quick one, like, like a minute. So um, you can check those out as well. Um, and I want to thank you all again for tuning in. And I will... Uh, give you more info in the next episode.